0: science story, huh?
1: Is NYU a scientist? Uh, they felt it.
0: Right. Right. was
2: so And
1: I just happy. thought, well... I figured
0: it wow. out. It was that tall. golden moment. Because science was on my side. Hey,
2: everybody. Welcome to the Story Collider, where we bring you true personal stories about science. I'm your host, Erin Barker, and as you may have noticed, it's not Friday. This is actually part one of a special bonus episode that we have put together to feature stories from our June 2018 show here in New York. Last June, we decided to produce an entire show just with stories about abortion, from doctors who provide abortions and patients who have had them. And this idea came from a conversation I had with one of our past storytellers, Veronica Addis, who is an OBGYN here in New York and with Doctors Without Borders. And when she originally suggested this idea to me, my immediate reaction was uncertainty. (laughs) I was a little bit nervous to take on this issue. As you may know, we have had stories on the podcast before that deal with abortion as well as other things that, that could be controversial. but. We have never actually done a whole show around one of these issues. And it just sounded like something that I I wasn't really prepared to handle. So I kind of put it in the back of my mind. But then I turned on the TV one day to a discussion about abortion. And I started thinking about the fact that when we hear this issue discussed, and we do hear it discussed a lot... We're rarely hearing from the people who have first-hand experience with it. We're not hearing from the doctors or the medical professionals who are involved. We're not hearing from the women who have sought this procedure. Most of the time, we're hearing a lot of opinions and a lot of passion, but not really anything real from people who have really been there. And that started to feel important to me. These stories matter. They matter to women, and they matter to science. So... I put out a call for pitches through our social media accounts and these are the stories that we found along with one from our OBGYN friend, Veronica, and they are not political statements. They are not speeches. They are just real, true, heartfelt stories that these women have so incredibly generously shared with us. And I'm so glad that I have the opportunity to share all of them with you. We will have three stories today in part one and two more in part two tomorrow. And I just really, I can't wait. I think you will really be surprised by how amazing these stories are. So, without any further ado, I'll introduce you to our first storyteller. As I said, this show was recorded in June 2018 at Caveat in New York City. Our first story is from comedian and actor, J.C. Powers.
1: So, there was a lot going on when this whole thing happened. There was my dad's sudden death and my mom getting sick and then this unplanned pregnancy. So, it's hard to really know where the story even began. But I know where the story ends. The story ends in the happiest place in the world, the recovery room at the Planned Parenthood in Manhattan. And if you've never been there, you don't get to judge. For 20 beautiful minutes, you sit in a room with a lot of ladies and recliners and everyone's drinking orange juice and eating cookies. Everyone just seems happy. You know, everyone seems relieved. Everyone seems like they are where they are meant to be. You know, it seems like they're staring at a new beginning. I guess the beginning of this story is technically sex, right? Um, Like five weeks before I found myself in the recovery room. (laughs) Sex was like sort of a rarity in my 18-month relationship, which is something they don't tell you about like death, that it'll affect you in weird ways. I just, I felt guilty about having sex for a while. So two days after this sex, I, I felt a, a lump in my left breast. Not really a lump, like a, a density. I mentioned it to my boyfriend. I didn't think it was a big deal, but he insisted that I go and see a doctor. So, when you get into doctors, it gets like into a lot of like logistical bullshit, right? I didn't have insurance, so I called Planned Parenthood. They told me that they wouldn't give a mammogram or a breast ultrasound to a woman who was only 25 years old without first having a physical exam, which would be $100, which they couldn't schedule for another two weeks. And if I needed another test, then it would be another $300, and that could be another month of waiting. So, I made some other calls, um, and eventually I found a breast cancer navigator at a hospital in Harlem. And she said she could see me the next day. So then she passes my call over to this nurse who starts asking me a barrage of questions. You know, what's your birth date? How much do you weigh? Blah, blah, blah. When was your last period? Huh. Well, there's an interesting question that I don't have an answer for. <laughs> a few months before, a friend of mine had bought me a bag of pregnancy tests as like a gag gift. She thought it was hilarious that you could get like three of them for a buck at the Dollar Tree. I think she thought it was funny because she was like a 25-year-old virgin. Like, I don't know that I think that's funny. But anyway, she gets me this bag, and as I'm staring at these tests, I'm not that nervous. Because like, you know, I've had a scare once or twice before, but it always end up with just like me being crazy. And that's what I thought this was gonna be. I'm like, I'm gonna end up with a negative pregnancy test and this like lump in my breast that only exists in my imagination. (laughs) So, I try one test (laughs) and then I try a second and then I try a third. Blue line after blue line after blue line. And as this reality sets in, All I want is to not have to make this decision. You know, I had sort of decided for myself when I graduated from college that even though I was totally pro-choice, like abortion was never going to be my choice. You know, I I would just feel... Anyway, so um, I went to the internet and I googled ways to not be pregnant. (laughs) I didn't want to have an abortion or anything, I just didn't want to be pregnant. So, you know, the best internet advice was to suck on vitamin C tablets and chew on some parsley like a lunatic. (laughs) 24 hours and 12 pregnancy tests later, I was in the office of the Harlem Breast Cancer Navigator, and she said, "Hey." Did you take that pregnancy test as you were instructed? And I said, yes, I took two. One was positive and one was negative. I don't know if I'm pregnant. See, I had to lie. I had to lie because they told me on the phone that if I was pregnant, they weren't going to examine me because if I was pregnant, then the density I felt was probably just you know, like a clogged milk duct or something. But I knew that it had been there before I could have possibly been pregnant. So the navigator examined me and she felt the density I was referring to, and so she sent me across the street to get a breast ultrasound. And I was greeted by a radiology nurse named Moira. Moira was this beautiful African-American woman with this broad smile, and she was just glowing as she entered the waiting room because she was eight months pregnant. And, you know, she's just chatting me up. Oh, yeah, sis are real common among young women, especially if you might be pregnant. I mean, I know you don't know for sure, but I was looking at your clipboard, and it's probably nothing. We see this kind of thing all the time. If you're thinking of... And then she was silent. Just totally silent as she moved the ultrasound wand over my breast. And I said, what are you looking at? a mass. I said, mass sounds like not a cyst. She said, no, I mean, I don't know. Um, I'll take some pictures and um, I'll send Dr. Wilder in to come and talk to you. And then she was gone. And I laid there in that darkened exam room for the longest 20 minutes of my life. (laughs) I just stared at the ceiling and I bargained with God. I said, you know what? It's totally cool if I have cancer. Really, it's fine. I won't even complain as long as I get to live. It's it's chill. I couldn't believe it. I mean, I, I hadn't even considered the idea that I might have cancer. I'd been so busy worrying about possibly being accidentally pregnant. I just, so, um. The doctor comes in, and he repeats what Moira had said to me, and I just ask him point blank. I say, are you telling me that you think I have cancer? And very gently, he says, I think there's a 90% chance that the mass is going to come back malignant. And I say, okay. It's just a lot, you know? I mean... My dad died six months ago, totally unexpectedly. And um, my mom was diagnosed with breast cancer just last month. I mean, she's had cancer three times, so it's not like I never thought this could happen. (laughs) You know, like I guess a part of me always thought that I would probably get cancer at some point. I I just didn't expect it to be today. Moira was standing in the back of the room, and the doctor shot her a look as she started to cry. And then he scheduled a bunch of other tests for me, you know, mammogram and a biopsy. And all day long, Moira was by my side and at some point she apologized to me for crying. She said, you know, it's just, I lost my daddy real suddenly too, just like you. And besides, I'm, I'm you know, so hormonal, but with being pregnant and everything, <laughs> which of course I was really conscious of. <laughs> You know, every new doctor I went to, I had to add this addendum. Hey, what if I might be pregnant? Can I do this test? Hey, what if I have to get an abortion? Is that going to affect this? After the 12th time I had used the word abortion in front of Moira, I started apologizing. I said, I'm so sorry. I'm sorry that I keep having to talk about terminating a pregnancy when you're here and you're pregnant. And she stopped me and she said, girl, I've had two abortions. She said, you know, when I was younger, I was with some men and I knew that I didn't want to be with them for life. I knew that they wouldn't be the fathers of my children. Second abortion was right before my daddy died. and For a while, I felt bad about it. I felt like maybe I had robbed him of grandbabies or something, but a few months after his passing, I met the father of my children. And this is my second baby now. I'm just saying, you gotta do what you gotta do to take care of you. You know, you've already done the most important thing. You got yourself here. You are catching this early. No one should judge you for that. So, I took care of me. The first thing was seeing all of the doctors. I saw an oncologist and a breast surgeon and a plastic surgeon and eventually a fertility endocrinologist. If you are a person who wants to have babies at some point and has to have chemotherapy, they send you to someone to help you preserve your eggs against the damaging effects of the chemotherapy. Well, I went to Dr. Schmidt, this endocrinologist, and he didn't know what the hell to do with me. He was like, well... I've never had a patient who was already pregnant. (laughs) I don't even know if I can stimulate egg growth in someone who's going to have the levels of pregnancy hormone that you will have even after the termination. Have you considered keeping the pregnancy? And I said, yes, I have. Do you think it's a good idea? And he said, honestly, no. You're young. It wasn't planned. It's obvious you, obvious you can get pregnant. I mean, it's hard for me to say because it's my job to get people pregnant. That's what I do for a living. But I think we'll be able to protect your eggs. And right now, you should spend all of your energy focusing on treating your cancer. Perfect. Now two doctors had told me that... There was no real decision to be made. I mean, my oncologist the week before had told me that technically it would be possible to keep the pregnancy. It would involve me having immediate surgery for my cancer and then delaying chemotherapy and then beginning chemotherapy while I was still pregnant and then inducing an early labor. It would compromise my treatment significantly. It was obviously not ideal. She also thought that because I was only four weeks pregnant that the stress of this whole situation might you know, cause things to resolve themselves. (laughs) But here I was a week later, (laughs) and a scope of my uterus showed that I was five weeks pregnant. I would learn that at a planned parenthood, when they perform these, these scopes, they face the screen away from you and they use terms like viable pregnancy. But in a fertility clinic like this one, they face the screen towards you and use terms like the baby has a heartbeat. So my next call was to Planned Parenthood. Even with my newly acquired Medicaid and a medically necessary abortion, I couldn't, there there was no way to cover it. Planned Parenthood was the only way to go, according to my doctors. I expected more red tape when I reached the operator, but I didn't even have to tell them that I had cancer. I told them I wanted an abortion and they said, can you come in tomorrow? Now, I want to know whose job it is to pick up a TV programming in the waiting room at the Manhattan Planned Parenthood. It must be a really hard job. You know, figuring out what should be on the screen as women sit there considering the complicated situation they've found themselves in. The morning I was there, the TV was playing Space Jam. (laughs) Looney Tunes and jerseys running up and down a basketball court, R. Kelly crooning in the background. I quickly identified different kinds of women in the waiting room. You know, like half the women were really young, teenagers basically, embarrassed, staring at their shoes, regretting some mistake they made one night. The other half of the women were women closer to my own age, staring you down, daring you to judge them. This was not their first time at the rodeo. (laughs) But I was in neither of these groups. I just floated above it. You know, this whole thing was out of my hands. And from my perch, above the fray, I noticed one woman sitting in the middle of the horseshoe-shaped room, shouting into her cell phone, Jason, Jason, I ain't having your baby. (laughs) Jason, there is no baby. I'm at Planned Parenthood right now. (laughs) Alexia brought me here. Oh, you could come down. They're, you're, they're not gonna let a man in here anyway, so I don't know what what? Jason, I ain't having your baby. There is no baby, Jason, Jason. You strike me in the face and you want me to have your baby? I saw your ID when the cops came. You said you were 30 years old? You're 40 fucking two years old. I ain't having your baby, Jason. And I thought, thank God for Alexia. Thank God for Planned Parenthood. Otherwise, you know, Jason's girlfriend would be having the baby of this man who lied to her and hit her. (laughs) Anyway. A few minutes later, I found myself in the recovery room at the Manhattan Planned Parenthood. Sitting back, drinking my juice. Happy, relieved, where I was meant to be, a new beginning. I looked around the room for Jason's girlfriend, but I didn't see her there. I wonder if she felt the same hazy relief that I felt, that all the women around me seemed to be feeling. I wonder how long that feeling lasted for them. You know, other women I know who have had abortions have feelings about it. You know, they feel self-righteous or proud or guilt or usually guilty that they don't feel more guilty but i didn't feel anything because i didn't make a choice i had to have an abortion but so did jason's girlfriend right <laughs> I mean, it's easy to say that this choice wouldn't be your choice when the possibility of being pregnant by your abuser, or pregnant and unemployed, or pregnant and fighting cancer seems like totally impossible and remote. So anyway, that's where my, my story ends. I left holding on to my recovery room glow without ever having to ask the question, do you want to have this baby? Do you want to be a mom? But the funny thing is, I know the answer to the second question. Yes. More than anything. Somewhere in a freezer in Minnesota, The eggs that I froze (laughs) with Dr. Schmidt are laying in wait. They are waiting for the day that I am ready to embrace that answer. They are waiting for the day that I choose them. And knowing that makes me feel happy. It makes me feel relieved. It makes me feel that I am where I am meant to be it feels like a new beginning.
2: That was JC Powers. JC is an actress and a writer, a stand-up and a storyteller. She's been seen performing off-Broadway and regionally in plays such as Our Town at the Barrow Street Theater and Falling at Minetta Lane Theater. She played the lead role in Picking Up, which she also wrote, and her newest play, Not About the Cat, had a reading in New York last summer featuring Catherine Erba, John Pankow, and Deidre Lovejoy. It's a a pleasure to mispronounce artistic things instead of scientific things for a change. As a stand-up, she's been seen at the Comedy Cellar, Stand Up New York, Broadway Comedy Club, Dangerfields, and more. She delivered the opening speech at the final Avon 39 Walked In Breast Cancer this past fall, and her story, Army of Women, aired on NPR last spring. She's a graduate of NYU and believes Nutella is the way to world peace. Don't we all? Our next story today is from Doctors Without Borders, OBGYN, Rasha Cory.
0: I'm very nervous, so I have to tell a joke before I tell my very serious story. So one of my favorite abortion uh, teachers, mentors, uh, used to like to yell at the protesters who were protesting in front of our abortion clinics, may the fetus you save grow up to be a gay abortion provider. So I'm gonna take you with me on a little story. I'm riding in a white pickup truck, and I'm crammed in there with three other people, pile of flak jackets, which are very heavy, helmets, and chemical weapons survival kits, which I had never seen before, and when I saw them, I wanted to go home instantly. And we're riding from our very sleepy village where we sleep, and we smoke too many cigarettes, and we eat too much rice, and driving to the destroyed town where we work every day. And it's about a four-hour drive every day to work for about 10 hours in um, the hospital with our local staff. And the route from the village to the destroyed town always made me feel homesick because we would ride in this convoy of white pickup trucks past these rolling green hills with herds of sheep and shepherds and small village houses. And then the terrain would change into like these flat fields with um, UN refugee camps, which are basically uh, white and blue tents, hundreds and hundreds of tents, and then these requisite uh, soccer fields with little kids playing. And then we'd get to the part that was probably buildings before and now was just pile of rocks that were kind of collapsed down. And then we'd drive a little bit more and come across uh, burned car skeletons. And this was our cue, the women's cue, to put on our headscarves for the rest of the day. And then we'd get pa- drive past building after building that was destroyed and sort of bombed in ways that I could never really decipher how exactly it happened. And we'd always wonder, did the people get out in time? And then we'd get to the checkpoints, and there was about four of them before we got to our hospital. And each checkpoint, we'd sort of roll up, slow down, turn off the sappy music that was playing on the radio, take off our sunglasses. Everybody would kind of tensely smile at the armed guards as they checked our papers and waved us through. And eventually, we'd make it to our buffer zones around our hospital, which were filled with very smiley unarmed guards who were MSF workers or Doctors Without Borders workers. And they would smile and wave us through. And then we'd get to this ER and hospital where we worked every day for about 10 hours with our, a lot of local staff, so people who lived in the community, and we'd treat everything from the totally extreme to the totally mundane. And I, I'm an obstetrician-gynecologist. I'm sort of a, a, a nerdy activist. Um, and I work for Doctors Without Borders, which is a humanitarian medical aid organization. And I'm, fr- and I'm Arab, and I'm from an Arab town very much similar to what I'm describing. I can't tell you the exact location for for security reasons, but you can imagine any place at war, and that's the place that we're in. So on this day, um, I arrive, and the ER is crammed with people, crying from shrapnel wounds, screaming from burns, people having heart attacks, people that sliced their finger cutting bread, really everything. And my staff run over, and they say there's a woman in the maternity ward that I need to go see and she's having trouble breathing. So having trouble breathing is an alarm sign in in medicine and I run over to make sure this person's okay, much like somebody having an allergy. Um, And I see she's she's hunched over, um, she's really struggling to breathe, she looks exhausted and her mother is standing by her side. And the patient tells me that she's pregnant but she's not sure how far along the pregnancy is and she whispers to me in Arabic, which is my first language, and she says, I really need this pregnancy to end. So I carry her over with my staff to a bed just so she's more comfortable, and I send somebody to grab the ultrasound machine from the ER so we can scan her and figure out what's going on. And my younger staff are so excited because I've been training them how to use the ultrasound, and they love every opportunity to practice. And they're putting the probe on her belly, and they're kind of sliming over too much gel, and they're trying to see what they see, and instantly I can see that there's way too much water inside her Uterus, and it's a problem that's probably causing her to have a hard time breathing. And they're looking and looking and I see one fetus and um, I see the heart beating and then I realize we haven't quite seen all the fetal parts. And so I ask if I can help move their hand on her belly to to check what's going on. And I realize that the fetus doesn't have um, brain structures. And this is a problem uh, called anencephaly, which is a just means absence of brain structures, and these fetuses actually can't survive. And it's a really rare problem; you almost never see it in the U.S. In my 10 years here working, I've seen it a handful of times. And that week um, in this project, we'd seen it five times and five different women. And it, it's linked to things like not, not having access to food, fortified food, to um, early pregnancy care, to family planning, um, to healthcare in general. So I start to tell her what's going on and I'm explaining what I see and she starts to sob. And her mother, who's standing by her side, explains to me that um, just a few weeks ago she'd lost three of her five kids in a mortar attack that had collapsed her home. And a couple of weeks later, her husband had been killed while trying to escape the siege of where they were um, with his elderly father. So I take a deep breath because I'm also delivering some pretty terrible news and start to figure out how we're going to move forward. And then in the background of uh, of where we're standing, I start to hear the word uh, haram. And haram is a word uh, in Arabic that means sort of forbidden in Islamic jurisprudence. And it's also a word that's sometimes thrown out for socially unacceptable uh, behaviors in the Arab world. People are saying haram, 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 all these different people, people are weighing in from other wards, the cleaners are weighing in, my, all my maternity staff is weighing in. And to me it was very clear what needed to be done. What needed to be done was for us to help her end this pregnancy so that she would be okay. And outside of our facility, which was a Doctors Without Borders facility, was a completely wrecked town um, with no other healthcare facility. So I'm starting to think, what is going to happen to her if we don't do this here? What if she goes home and feels worse? What if her shortness of breath gets worse? What if she goes into labor at home and starts to bleed and it's unattended? And she could basically lose her life. So I'm discussing with my team, and I'm trying to sort of bring them on board, and people are really hesitant, and um, eventually they say, if I, as a non-local staff, take responsibility for this abortion, they're okay with it. And I internally get really mad, because we're a humanitarian organization, we offer impartial, neutral medical aid, we treat armed groups that perpetrate violence, people who are victims of violence, and for some reason when it comes to women and abortion, we get all wrapped up in the morality and the risk of of the medical aid we're providing. But I keep all this anger to myself and I sort of reflect on it many months later when I'm not in that situation, Um, and in the moment I say, okay, no problem. I'm a non-local staff, I'll, I'll take the responsibility, I'll do this abortion. And we. Are stressed because I soon have to leave because at sunset every day our medical convoy has to leave this destroyed town because of risks of mortar attacks and kidnapping and such things. So I feel like I'm racing the clock. And we start to give her the medications that induce her labor and it's something called an induction termination which is just another word for abortion. And she actually starts to go into labor. She starts to contract. She breaks her water. And then she starts to bleed which is a very common problem when you have too much water in your uterus Um, and now I'm getting really nervous because I really don't want anything to go wrong with this abortion and nothing bad to happen to this woman and I'm working with my midwife and she's amazing and she's supporting this woman and the mother is praying for her and we're grabbing bags of saline and blood and different medications that we need In the midst of all this, my radio, which is how we stay safe in the field uh, in such projects, starts to go off, and it's saying, medical convoy is leaving in 10 minutes. Um, And I start to curse under my breath, and I radio back, I can't leave, we have to hold it for a medical emergency. And holding the convoy in the destroyed town for a medical emergency is not a small thing, because you're putting all your team members at risk. And I continue to work, and then out of the corner of my eye, I see my field coordinator peek in and look at what's happening and then I hear on the radio everything on hold until the medical emergency is finished and I think I need to give this guy a hug later because that's amazing. And I keep working with my midwife and the patient I'm like okay she's got to deliver soon she's got to deliver soon and in, in a, a little bit of time she does deliver and then she starts to have a hemorrhage which is a very severe type of bleeding. And we're running, and all the different uh, team members are running to get more blood from the, from the blood bank, to get medicines from the operating room. We have a very fancy thing called a uterine balloon that helps keep the uterus from, um, from bleeding too much and helps it contract, and we're doing all this massage, and the mother is praying. And after about an hour of a lot of stress and a lot of sweat, the patient is okay, and her blood pressure is okay, and she smiles a little bit, and her mom is kissing the midwife's hand and the midwife just looks so incredibly proud. And then I realize I'm really late for this stupid white truck convoy and I say goodbye and I run to the convoy and I get into the truck and this German nurse turns around, looks at me and she says, you're late. (laughs) And in the moment I was like, I wanted to you know, say some curse word expletive, but I was like, you know what, I'm just so proud I just can't say anything. I felt like we were the best, we did the best thing that day. So on the ride home I'm sort of thinking and talking with the people in the truck with me and um, I think when you think of war you think of, of really serious injuries and sort of death from shrapnel and bombs and gunshots and you don't really think of all the people that suffer from lack of access to medical care and lack of access to abortion. Um, and a thousand women every day die from pregnancy or from um, complications of pregnancy. And that's a really big and serious thing. And I'm so proud to be an abortion provider and to be a humanitarian aid worker who helps take care of women so that they can actually survive these events and thrive mm-hmm. in their communities. <laughs>
2: Rasha Khoury. Rasha is a Palestinian woman who works as an emergency obstetrician with Doctors Without Borders and is a fellow in maternal fetal medicine at Montefiore Medical Center in the Bronx. Rasha's clinical work and research centers around reducing maternal morbidity and mortality by improving access to high-quality, dignified, and safe abortion and contraceptive care, interpartum, delivery, and postpartum care among vulnerable populations. Her work as a humanitarian medical aid worker has taken her to Afghanistan, Iraq, Lebanon, and beyond. All right, we have one more story for you today. And just a reminder, we'll be releasing part two tomorrow with two more stories. But for now, our final story for part one of this special episode is from abortion doula and comedian Molly Gaby.
3: I shut the door to the exam room and stand and look at Claire, who's in the room with me. I tell her where she can put her belongings. She can put her purse on the chair, jacket behind the door, shoes in the corner there. I apologize for the temperature. It can get really hot in the winter. They really pump up the heat. So I can open a window and let a nice breeze come in. I hand her a clear plastic bag. It's kind of like a giant Ziploc bag. And there's three things in it. There's a medical gown and two light blue booties. These go over your socks like this and I mind putting them over my own feet. I do the same thing with the gown, arms to the front, opening in the back. I like to give a visual as well as verbal instructions because I know for me, whenever I'm at the doctor's office, I'm never listening when they tell me what to do with the ties or the this or the that. My mind is always on the reason why I'm there at the doctor's office in the first place, you know? I'm, I'm thinking, I hope I'm not sick. I hope that test results are negative. I hope my tampon doesn't show up on the x-ray here. (laughs) So I pull the curtain to give her some privacy to change and when she's done, I come in and I say, okay, now we just get to chat and hang out and wait until the doctor comes in. And she looks at me, she looks at the ground, she looks at me again. And I know what she's about to ask. It's probably the most common question that's asked in this room. She looks at me and says, Is this going to hurt? Claire is here for an abortion. She's early, five weeks. And today, I'm going to be her abortion doula. And that means I'm going to be with her during and after the procedure. So that means I'm just here to encourage her, empower her, distract her, bear witness for her. I'm not a doctor, clearly. I don't know how x-rays work. My function in this room today is just to be a hand to hold and mostly actually in Claire's case Just to have distracting conversation about which Hogwarts house we would be divided into So we're in the room and We have the procedure and I tell her what I tell everybody. I said hang in there. You're doing great Because that's what a doula does, right? That's it. I mean, I think the term doula is most often associated with the birthing process, but it's really at its base just a compassionate support person. You know, I think about all the times in my life when I could have used a doula, you know, like when I got a tattoo on what turned out to be the boniest part of the human body, (laughs) or when I went on that first date with a guy who surprised me and brought me to his weekly four-hour slam poetry session. (laughs) Again, because I just could have used a doula to be there and be like, you got this, Molly. Hang in there. It's almost over. (laughs) So that's what I did for Claire that day, and she was great. And then we went into the recovery room, and I was handing her a little glass of ginger ale, and she sipped it. And then she looked at me, and she asked me another question. She said, Molly, have you ever done this? Have you ever had an abortion? And I said, no, I haven't. Two weeks later... I was walking home from work, going down the stairs of the subway, and my boobs had been hurting so bad, the kind of bad where you have to hold them like a precious toy dog as you walk down the stairs. You know what I mean? And to get home, I have to pass a pharmacy, and I was thinking, you know what? I got a couple of CVS extra bucks. Why don't I go ahead and pick up a pregnancy test, just for fun? It's Friday, what the hell? So I go home to my apartment and I go to the bathroom and I pee on the stick and I wait for that one line to appear. That one line that will tell me that I'm not pregnant. Um, and I really actually appreciate the like drama and the magic of the pregnancy tests. It's like reverse disappearing ink, it's very fun. <laughs> so I'm waiting for the one line and the one line appears. Great, show over, curtain call. And then another line started to appear. And I started to panic. And I was looking at the pregnancy test, like Marty McFly looks at that photograph of his siblings disappearing. But in my case, another line was appearing. And I was like, no, 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 we've gotta go back. (laughs) But I couldn't go back. I was pregnant. And pregnant for me meant having an abortion. I just never wanted kids. It's as simple as that. And actually, my mom gave me some really interesting advice growing up. She said, Molly, never have kids! (laughs) I really took that to heart. I also uh, knew that it would be easy for me to get one in New York. I mean, I live in New York City. I have insurance. I know exactly where to go. I mean, I'm an abortion doula, for God's sakes. I'm basically abortion Barbie with brown hair. And less shoes. And no car. And more mustache. Okay. (laughs) Where was I? Two lines. I'm looking at the two lines. Two lines is bad for me. I'm nervous. My pulse is racing. My cheeks are hot. My ankles are sweating because that's a fun thing that my body does now. And I'm thinking, even though I know every part of the procedure, I still don't know how I'm gonna act when I'm there for my own procedure. And then I look at the two lines again and I think, oh crap, I have a date tonight. (laughs) And I'm like, I'm not going on that thing. So I briefly entertain texting this guy to cancel the text, Um, can't make it tonight, I'm pregnant. (laughs) And then seeing how long he freaks out before he realizes we've never had sex. But I don't because I'm not a monster. (laughs) Instead, I just ghost him and pretend I never was alive. (laughs) If you're here, Ted, I'm sorry. It wasn't you. It was me. Um, So... Poor Ted. (laughs) So I made my appointment for two weeks later, and so I had kind of that amount of time to prepare for my role reversal from abortion doula to abortion patient. Uh, And I was nervous, but I had other things to deal with first. The first order of business was telling people, right? I mean, I had to tell people. I don't keep anything to myself, especially this. (laughs) So telling people that you're pregnant and going to get an abortion is a very nerve-wracking experience because once you speak that fact out loud, it's sort of out of your hands in a way. It enters the realm of public opinion And apparently, everybody has an opinion. (laughs) And in my case, it wasn't even about the fact that I was going to get an abortion, but it was how I told people, who I told, and in what order I told them. Did you guys know about this? There's an abortion notification pyramid. (laughs) And what it is, you have to tell your closest friends first and in a whisper, lest a stranger over here and the whole pyramid comes toppling down. But I I didn't want to do that, because doing that kind of felt like it was some shameful secret I was supposed to keep, and it didn't feel like that, not to me. So on purpose, I told everyone I saw in the order that I saw them. (laughs) So I think that next day it was my deli guy, my boss, my friend Jen, everybody who works at Lucky Burger, and then my deli guy again. We're very close now. I also ended up telling the person who participated in making me pregnant. At the time I found out I was pregnant, I actually hadn't spoken to him in two weeks because finally, after years, I had gotten the courage to leave that toxic and abusive relationship. I believe that every pregnant person has the right to do with their body what they want and tell who they want and not tell who they want. So, it kind of surprised me that I did tell him. I think part of me wanted comfort from him, and the other part of me wanted him to suffer some of the anxiety of it with me. I, there was no playbook for how to do this. It all felt messy and complicated, and I didn't know if what I was doing was right or wrong. I was just reacting to how I was feeling moment to moment. and. Pregnancy temporarily tied me back up with that part of my life that I wanted gone, and I knew abortion was gonna be the thing to free me from it forever. So two weeks went by, very slowly, and then way too fast. And then the morning was here, and I got up very early, (laughs) earlier than I ever want to again. I'm a night person, so I guess I'm only getting up that early for flights and abortions from now on. So I get to the clinic, and I take a deep breath, and I walk inside, and usually, if this was the clinic where I was doulaing at, I would walk straight back, put on my scrubs, get together those plastic bags for the patients. Um, but now I found myself stopping at, checking, at check-in, and checking in, <laughs> and then waiting in the waiting room. I was just mindlessly flipping through magazines for God knows how long until they called my name. And the walk back there felt so surreal. Like I was still in the mind frame of, I'm not the patient, I'm the person in the back waiting for the patient. I was acting extremely gregarious, cracking jokes, making fun of myself. I wanted everybody there to think that this was old hat for me, you know? When in fact this was a brand new hat. This hat still had the label on it. So, I finally get to the procedure room, and I'm waiting for the doctor to get in. And she walks in, and I am thrilled. This is a doctor who I have worked with before at another clinic as a doula, and she is the best. She's so kind, caring, compassionate, wonderful. I spring up and I give her a big hug, and I'm like, oh my god, you're here? What are the chances? This is so crazy. I needed an abortion, she provides abortions, the chances are high. (laughs) I was talking very fast, I remember that. Even as I was laying on the exam table, I was still talking like a mile a minute, trying to fill the space with myself, with my voice, with my faux nonchalance. I didn't want to leave any extra room, any extra air, any space to go unfilled, lest someone have the chance to ask me if I have any more questions. Because honestly, the only question I had in that moment was, is this going to hurt? So we, me and the doctor, were talking as the nurses were drawing up the medication. And I think I have gotten away with this, I'm still the doula act, when the doctor stops. She lets the room be silent. She touches my shoulder, and she looks at me. She was on to (laughs) me. I know this because the next thing she said was, you're going to be fine. In that moment, in that small moment of stillness and connection, I got permission to drop the act. I let myself be cared for and supported. I fully surrendered to that moment of deep kindness and I let myself be doula I left it to the last second right before the procedure but in that final moment, I finally let myself be vulnerable how human of me thank you
2: that was molly gaby molly is a comedian living in new york where she writes for lady parts justice league which molly describes as a reproductive rights organization that uses comedy to expose anti-choice extremist douchebags She can be seen performing every Saturday with her house team women and men at the Upright Citizens Brigade Theater. Molly is an abortion and birth doula with the Doula Project and a member of the sketch team Buzz Off, Lucille. Find out more at mollygaby.net. Collider is grateful for the support of the Tiffany & Co. Foundation and Science Sandbox, a Simons Foundation initiative dedicated to engaging everyone with the process of science. Story Collider is directed by Liz Neely and Aaron Barker, that's me, with help from our amazing team. The stories featured in today's podcast were from a show produced by me, Aaron Barker, as well as Tracy Rowland and Paula Croxon. The podcast is produced by Zoe Saunders. The theme music is by Ghost. Special thanks to Caveat for hosting this show and to all of the many organizations in New York who advised us from Lady Parts Justice League to Doctors Without Borders We appreciate all of your help so much. Thanks for listening.